0: What I need is a vampire cocktail to settle my nerves. It'll not only settle them, it will petrify mm. A vampire cocktail. You like it? It hates you. I've had several letters asking whether olives or cherries should be used in making my cocktail. Well, actually, neither is necessary since they'd only disintegrate upon being put into the cocktail. However, if you want to use some garnish, you can drop in an eyeball. if you happen to have an extra one around the house?
1: Hello, and welcome to the Woman in Revolt podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Pugh. In the episode you're about to hear, Joe and I take a deep dive into Myla Nurmi, better known as Vampira. From 1954 to 1955, she hosted The Vampira Show on KABC-TV, a local Los Angeles affiliate of ABC. While the show was short-lived, it received international attention and pioneered the concept of themed movie hosts. In other words, it was a big fucking deal. But because it was a live broadcast and none of the episodes were properly archived, it's a bit lost to the annals of film history. Something to note while listening to this episode is that we filmed it more than a year ago. At that time, Joe was going by her first name, which is Anita. So when you hear me referring to Anita, that's Joe. When I turn 60, I'm going to start exclusively going by my middle name, which is Rose, so please start preparing for that now. Anyway, we hope you enjoy the episode, which will take you through Milo Nurmi's life, from her shitty childhood to her death in 2008. We highly recommend checking out the show notes for a full list of sources, along with reading and watching recommendations. Now please enjoy this episode that I'm about to awkwardly drop you into. Well, anyway, we're here today to talk about Miss Vampira, a.k.a. Mila Nurmi, a.k.a. what is her real name? It is Mila Elizabeth Surnainen, and I'm
2: probably terribly mispronouncing that, and I apologize.
1: Well, it is Finnish, one of those languages that has all kinds of crazy vowels in a row and shit, and like the umlauts, and I have no idea how you say it, so... Yes. You took one for the team.
2: I did take one for the team, and I apologize to anyone that is finished out there listening to us. Please forgive me.
1: Yeah, we tried our best. We did. So, yeah, we wanted to talk about Vampira because she is kind of just one of those people who first, had the type of career where you see so much potential, but it never quite became what it could have if she hadn't run into a shit ton of obstacles. And I think, too, just because she was the type of person that we both really would have loved to have known in real life. And she just is the kind of person who attracted a lot of other interesting people. Like if you look at her, you can connect her to so many different people in Hollywood who ended up becoming big stars, but were maybe like right on the cusp when she knew them. So she's very interesting for that reason.
2: She is so interesting. I was thinking, what could I equate Myla Nurmi to? And for me, she It seems like maybe like every 100 years or every 50 years, there's one person that comes into the world that's just so unique. There's no one else like them. Prince was one for me. I felt like he was just a being from another planet. And after reading what I did about her, watching all the clips I could find, documentaries about her, I, I really had this feel for her, too. Like, she was just not of this world. She was so special, tragically special, brilliant, wonderful. It just really opened up a new obsession for me.
1: Yeah, and she just seemed like the kind of person who was very deeply sensitive and empathic she seemed to be really good at finding other people who are sort of like that as well and connecting with them deeply. And sometimes I think she might have misjudged people who she thought were kindred spirits but who actually weren't, and they oftentimes took advantage of her or ended up abandoning her once their own careers took off. So there's a lot of sadness in her history. A lot of these things I was reading just made me feel so depressed that she couldn't find people who treated her better. We acknowledge that she probably wasn't always the easiest person to be around, but I still think that the way that some of these people, especially men, treated her is really fucked up and upsetting.
2: (laughs) I look at the people, and we will get into this, she she had a lot of male friends. She seemed to be like a moth to the flame when it came to men. Many of them were not her lovers, but she was obsessed with them. She would lose herself in these relationships, and they knew exactly what they were doing, and they maybe came to her because they sensed that she would give everything to them and listen to them and make them the center of her world. And she did that over and over and over to her detriment. And I think it was many, many years before she finally figured out what she was doing and eventually just lived a life alone, even though I think that she never lost her desire to have a true love in her life. That That's just the take that I, I got from everything that I read.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that she was definitely in pursuit of true love and connection and that that took precedent over her career in many different aspects of her life. And I would say too that a lot of, again, I don't want to go into psychoanalyzing some person I've never met before, but it did seem like she had A lot of issues with her father, and for good reason, because he sucked.
2: In her younger years, he was her idol. As time went on, he was a very demanding and difficult man with all the women in his life. Not only her, but also his wife. I did not get a good feel from this man. He was very self-centered, and I think that she had a lot of emotional scars, From him and from her mother as well. I think that she probably always was so sensitive and very fragile mentally. And I think that her upbringing just helped amplify these problems tenfold and set her on the path that she took in her life.
1: And her dad, his whole deal, and correct me if at any point I'm not getting this right, but her dad was Finnish. His name was Oni. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it correctly, but it's O-N-N-I. And her mom was American, but there's actually that really fucked up anecdote about how her mom gave up her American citizenship to take on Finnish citizenship. And then wasn't it like she was on the cusp of being deported or something because Oni left to go do a job and she was alone in America? Are you remembering this?
2: Yes, absolutely. At the time, the laws were, even though the mother, who was Sophia Peterson, was born in America, since she married a Finnish man, she lost her American citizenship. Now, later, they changed the laws so that that wouldn't happen. But basically, she became Finnish. He left. She was under the threat of being deported. He left her with two young children, of course, one being Mila and her brother, Bobby when they were just kids. And at that point, I believe that that's when her mother descended, unfortunately, into alcoholism in order to deal with everything.
1: Yeah. And her dad was a newspaper editor, but he was also religious. And I don't know, would you call him, I don't think it's proper to call him a minister, but he was like an orator or something in the church.
2: Yes, an evangelist. Yeah. I've heard that term used in, in some of the biographies.
1: And he had a lot of judgmental feelings toward alcohol in general. And it was almost, again, and I don't, none of this is explicitly stated in anything I've read. I'm just kind of filling in the blanks for myself. But it sort of seems like Sophia took up drinking almost in a protest to his rigidity when it came to anything that was kind of seen as taboo or untoward for women.
2: I think at that time, of course, women had no rights. So I think that that was her one way that she could protest was, what can I do that would be the worst? What What would he view as the worst thing in life that I could do? And she did it.
1: And Mila did have a brother. And we should say one of the books that we read and we absolutely loved. And if, you are interested in reading a really, really good personal recounting of Myla Nurmi's life, we really recommend Glamour Goal: The Passions and Pain of the Real Vampire*, Myla Nurmi by Sandra Ner- Sandra Nimi, who is Myla's niece. So we read a couple of books about Myla and also watched a documentary that is free on Tubi called *Vampire and Me. But the thing that I think was really the best and where we're taking a lot of the content from this episode from is Glamour Ghoul, her niece's biography about Myla.
2: It was a wonderful book. It was truly a labor of love that her niece, Sandra, did. I also read Vampire, Dark Goddess of Horror by W. Scott Poole. That one was released in 2014. And I did find that one interesting, but he did not have the in-depth information, of course, that her own niece had. And W. Scott Poole's book was good for me in count that it brought in some interesting aspects of what was going on in Hollywood at the time and just the general tone of Hollywood and why some of the things professionally that happened to Mila happened. But I read his book first. And then when I read Glamour Ghoul, it just filled in all of the pieces. And I would say Glamour Ghoul just came out in January 2021. And I'm so glad that it came out before we did this podcast, because it really is a gem.
1: Yeah. And I, so Anita had read the W. Scott Poole book before me. I didn't, I didn't finish it. I made it like halfway through and kind of just I ran. I mean, I will finish it, but I just didn't have time before this. But I would agree, it just doesn't have any of the personal details that the Sandra Nimi book does, because that's coming from the perspective of her niece, who actually knew her and really, I think, cared so deeply about her legacy that she did a lot of legwork, talked to a lot of old friends. I, I think, Anita, you said this book took her like 10 years to write.
2: Yes. Yes, she wanted to do it. Her her nieces, from what I gather from the book, is not a wealthy person, and she was not a writer, and it was a daunting task. So this was truly a labor of love. She put her heart and soul into it, and please support support her and support the memory of Myla Nermi by purchasing this book from her because it is a true gem to read and. I would love to meet Sandra Nimi one day. I just think that she would be a wonderful person. I would just love to take her out and have a glass of wine and just talk with her, not even about the book, but just she just seems like such a kind and loving soul. So buy that book.
1: Yes, buy it. We got a lot of things from that book that we loved. the The family stuff, I think that we touched on... Some of the biggest aspects of it, you know, the alcoholic mother, the father who really cared about his career, and he was always traveling, too. Like, he would get an opportunity to be a newspaper editor for a Finnish newspaper in Brooklyn. And he would just tell his wife like, "Okay, well, I'm going to Brooklyn and uh, you can stay here and um, yeah, I'll see you uh, whenever this job is done. It just seemed like he was always leaving and didn't really give a shit about his family at all. And I have to imagine that that created a lot of unease in Myla and probably also her brother, who like I said, is not really, we don't really know very much about him based on the book. He's not really discussed very much. And I I don't know if, uh, I don't know what their relationship was like. But I do know that it seems like Milo was deeply impacted by all of the chaos in her family.
2: She definitely was. Um, She was born December 11th, 1922. She was born in Massachusetts. They later moved around. I think they ended up pretty much in Oregon is where you could say that she grew up. There was a large Finnish community there, I believe in Astoria. She did travel a little bit with her father on the evangelical circuits. He was kind of a hero on the circuits. And at one point in her life, on and off, she said more than once that, I I eventually one day want to be you know, an evangelist. And I don't think she was particularly religious, but I think that she had just the brilliance and the mind and the ability to speak and the charisma that she felt like this was something she could do. Maybe also it was a a way of her of trying to get an approval from her father and maybe even her mother that she could never get because they were not the type of people that were going to ever give it to her. I also know with her mom, the relationship was strained, not only because of alcoholism, but because she had mentioned in the documentary that I watched that her mother was always the type person that everything was negative And everything, she was always telling Mila what she couldn't do and how dumb she was. And she just better get in line and get, get herself married and, and live a normal life. And she just mother and daughter could not relate. And I also believe that her mom may have been a little physically violent with her at times. She talked about one time baking a cake and the ingredients weren't right. And the cake was a disaster. And her mom just came in the kitchen and slapped her and said, you've wasted all these ingredients. So there was a lot of trauma going on with her for a long time.
1: And it seemed like she had maybe a Bit more respect for her father, even though he was so absentee, because when she later talks about wanting to become an evangelist, she sort of talks about him as being the intellectual in the relationship, and her mom being sort of more the lowbrow figure. Like I know that her father is the one who chose the name for her, and she's named after a Finnish author. And she seemed to take some pride in that. and seemed to have more embarrassment for her mother's instability. You know, even though her father wasn't around, at least he was working as a newspaper editor, whereas her mom, after they got divorced, which happened later when Milo was an adult, it it seemed like her mom just kind of disintegrated, whereas her dad kind of kept living his own independent life. And it's just a very sad situation and a no-win situation, And I guess the point just is that her childhood was unstable and that she had to kind of look for stability wherever she could find it and that she had to kind of rely on herself a lot.
2: Absolutely. One thing that struck me is she said in the documentary, I felt like I was never of this world, like the world was always a terrifying place to her. She felt like an alien, like she didn't know what she was doing on the earth. She never fit in one thing she would do as a child, one of her ways to escape was comics, of all things. She would read comics. She enjoyed, she was apparently quite the artist. She would draw comics. And she said that she would create her own comic book characters trying to create a world less terrifying. So I know a lot of it was family environment, but it just seemed like even from a very young age, for whatever reason, she felt very alienated in this world.
1: Yeah, definitely. And she ended up leaving her parents pretty much as soon as she could. I think it was after she graduated high school. She did have this series of odd jobs. Where she graduated high school and she worked was it a sardine factory? It was some kind of fish cannery yes, so she did that she they were all kind of gross jobs too, and I'm blanking on what the other ones were, but what was there? the fish cannery, and there was another disgusting one that I can't think of yeah,
2: yeah I can't think of it right now, but she did she did a lot of jobs just just because she needed her father's support. For things and he pretty much said if I'm gonna keep supporting you you have to do this and you have to do that and sh- and she would jump through the hoops for a while but I think a nine to five job or conventional life for her at this moment in her life even though she yearned for love it was not something that she could wrap her mind around she just couldn't do it
1: no absolutely not and it was all hard work too it wasn't even just like an easy nine to five job it would have been like the shittiest nine to five job that you can imagine. And getting paid nothing and having no respect. And so I understand why she hated that. But she did eventually save up money. And then her I think it was her mother, her mother's brother. So her uncle and aunt uh, lived in Los Angeles. And so she ended up that's how she kind of got out of her family home saved up money, sort of just, I think, told her parents, like, I'm going and doing this. And then they did help set her up with the aunt and uncle. And so then she moved in with them for a bit before she got herself more established in Los Angeles. And then she finally moved out on her own. So she had a lot of guts, like a lot of these women that we talk about, where they just said, nope, I can't be here anymore. I need to be somewhere else. I'm leaving. And then they find a way to go do it, even though it had to have been terrifying to not have very much money and to be dependent on other people to help you, but to do everything that you can to just get out of your situation and hopefully find something better. She did have guts.
2: I know I could have never done that, especially at this time. You know, we're talking this was in the 1940s. Women just didn't do this. I know at one point she went into New York for a while with a friend and then she came back to LA and she was basically crisscrossing the country as a 20-year-old with no money and somehow lived to tell about it, which was pretty incredible in itself. So her persistence and her determination, and I just think just her street smarts, she, she always knew how to stay alive. She was always able to adapt move and groove, go with the situation, and anything she could to keep going. And that was something to be admired, in my opinion.
1: For sure. Just to be able to find a way to make it work, to be constantly running out of money, and to just find a way to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that I forgot to look up and now I'm, I'm regretting is... Do you remember the story she tells about, I think it's after she's already in Los Angeles, she ends up becoming friends with someone when they're working the odd job of selling magazines door to door. And the friend's name is Gail Bogdanovich. And I was wondering if she was somehow connected to Peter Bogdanovich.
2: Are you Mm, remembering this? That would be interesting. Interesting. I kind of remember that, but I don't know if there was any connection with that.
1: But that may be something interesting to look up. Yeah, I'm not sure. But just to give you a sense of how she was so willing to go anywhere, she just with this friend, they had some savings. They decided they were going to go to New York and they were going to live there. And the friend had a wealthy family that she could fall back on, but she was very insistent on you know, no, no, I'm going to do this all by myself. I need to prove to my parents that I can be independent. And so they got on a bus and they ended up stopping at a carnival after meeting some man on the bus. And they were in this carnival as like pinup girls or I don't know, sexy, alluring women at the carnival. And they did this job for, I think, just one night and then kind of realized like, oh, this isn't for us. And then made their way back to New York City. But you know, two girls in their late teens making all of these decisions alone and finding some way to make it work and to try new things is very impressive to me. It takes a lot of guts.
2: Oh, my gosh. Yes. That story was insane. I think they just put them like in bikinis or something and had them getting the crowd of men horny before they went in for the real show (laughs) that was in the tent. Yes, that's
1: what it was. They were like fluffers for the strip show or something, something like that. I just wouldn't have had the confidence or the courage. I would have been so scared. I'm a worrier and I would have just been worrying about somebody taking advantage of me or like all of the crazy things that could be happening would be running around in my head and giving me an anxiety attack. So I couldn't have done any of this shit. I would have crumbled.
2: Yes, I would have crumbled. That's a good word. I would have definitely done that.
1: But I mean, once she ends up moving back to Los Angeles, we should probably talk about the Orson Wells stuff. Because when I read this, and I did not know any of this before, it just cemented my hatred of him and made me feel like, yes, everything you thought you knew about him and all of the reasons that you didn't like him, which were a little bit vague, now are a bit more solidified. So. Of course, Mila ends up, as we said, she sort of just attracts people who are interesting or who are important or who are about to be somebody or who are already somebody. And when she was young and in L.A., she was working at, do you remember what? the place was called. Was it the Savoy or was it another place?
2: It may have been the Savoy. I know she she was a waitress or a cigarette girl there, right?
1: Yes. Like she had all of these kind of odd jobs before she got more established and started working as Vampira. And so she was working somewhere and she ended up I think it was actually a night that she was just out with a friend getting a drink and she was sitting at the bar and the friend ended up abandoning her for some guy. And Myla saw Orson Welles at one of the tables. And at this point, she had a lot of aspirations of getting into radio. So Orson Welles was huge to her. She had so much admiration for him. And she ended up going over to his table and I think basically gushing over him. And I think he was nice enough about it, but she kind of felt embarrassed and walked away. And then later, when her friend had left and she was all alone... And Orson's party had left. He came up to her and they started talking. And then I think he arranged for a car to send her home. And then after that, he started sort of romancing her, sending her flowers or calling to take her out, but never using his real name. It was very clear that it was just she was one of many and he wasn't serious about her in any regard, But he was pursuing her, and of course, none of this ended well at all.
2: Yes, it was definitely, for him, just a booty call. And for her, she tells a story that when she was young, she first heard Orson Welles on the radio, and she loved him, and she didn't even know who he was, and she ran into her mother and said, That's my friend on the radio, and I know he's a genius, and I love him. And her mother was like, shut up. Of course he's a genius. That's Orson Welles. He's not your friend. You're nobody. Shut the hell up. So when she finally met him in real person and they started this sexual relationship, this was huge for her.
1: And she was. She talks about being a virgin at the time. And honestly, I hate the term virgin and I hate society's focus on virginity and all of that bullshit. So don't think for a second that I'm placing any type of judgment or standard onto that term. But I bring it up just to say that she was sexually inexperienced. She hadn't been with anybody. And she really did think that when she was having sex with Orson Welles, that she was having sex with her future husband. So she was thinking about it very seriously, whereas he obviously just wanted to fuck her. And her emotions were all involved. And she was very invested in it. And she wasn't picking up on any of the signs that that is not at all where he was, even remotely.
2: If I'm remembering correctly, I think the first sexual experience with him was a little bit terrifying for her it sounded like which would make sense you know she had no experience and here was this man and I'm sure he wasn't gentle or probably even caring about her feelings of what was happening and I think that she truly expected that they were going to get married and have a little house and they were going to have kids and spend their entire lives together at that point.
1: Oh, totally. And he didn't even, when he took her back to what she thought was his house, it ended up not even being his house. It was like he and the actor Joseph Cotton went in on this like fuck pad where they would bring their female prospects back to have sex with them. And she was thinking like, wow, this really seems like a modest place for Orson Wells, And it's because it wasn't even his house. So he was just an all-around disgusting person. She was super invested. And then, of course, she ended up getting pregnant at age 20. And he, at this point when she found out, was already done with her. He didn't even want to be bothered. He didn't even want to have sex with her anymore. So she was discarded, pregnant, all alone, obviously didn't have a good job or financial resources or stability. And so... In her niece's book, which contains some excerpts from Mila's journals, she wrote something like, at age 20, my life was over. So that's what this did to her. This put her in the shittiest possible position and made her deal with a whole bunch of things that she shouldn't ever have had to deal with, and at least not at that age and not in that way.
2: It was such a sad time, and I think it was a one of the first Real lessons of Hollywood. We're going to chew you up and spit you out. We don't care about you. And everybody is out to eat their own to get ahead. I think it was a shocking experience from her. And from what I remember, she had to go back to her parents for help at this point.
1: Yeah, I think her dad was living in Brooklyn at the time and her mom as well. And she had to get help from them. And to their credit, they did help her. And the way her niece writes about it, they didn't place a ton of judgment on her either, which was sort of surprising. But they also definitely had their feelings and opinions, and all of those were very antiquated. But she did have the support to have the baby and then give it up for adoption. So at least there was that. At least she was not saddled with a child that she wasn't fit to take care of at the time. I just mean financially and emotionally and with this person who was the father but would clearly never claim the child. So I think that she was able to get out of what could have been a really, really bad thing for her. But I think that we still cannot discount that entire experience and how harrowing it must have been.
2: I remember either reading Somewhere or on the documentary reading her description of having having the baby. And in the description, she almost talks about it like it's a third person and an it. I think she had to completely separate her feelings for the baby. And she talked about how she got to hold the baby for just a few moments before and, and feel that mothering love for just a second until it was snatched out of her hands and taken away. So I feel like there was a part of her... because. She never was able to locate the child. Of course, now it's so much easier to try to locate someone. And as we go on in this, we'll see why it would have just been impossible for her to ever mount any type of search for her son. She had a son. But I do believe that she probably almost had to just, like, put that whole experience and the memory of that baby in a part of her mind where she could just lock that door and not think about it. That would be my opinion, solely my opinion on that. Like, she just had to completely separate herself from that.
1: I think because it was such a horrific experience. Like, I found the section where she, Myla, writes about it in her journal and She says, on March 11th, 1944, I spewed forth a son. It was an excruciatingly painful experience and one that I vowed never to repeat. So there you go. That's how she wrote about it. And like Anita said, I think it's just how she had to think about it because she wasn't at the place where she could do anything and be involved in this kid's life. And she did what was best for him. And I think that it's great she was able to do that. It's great she was able to move on and have a life and not let that experience drag her into the ground. Because if it had, I think that would be totally understandable and not surprising.
2: Yes, that was she overcame. I hate to say an obstacle when we're talking about her son, but it was an obstacle at that time in her life from where she was at that point. You know, a young, unwed mother at this time frame with no perspective of help. So I know she did what she thought was best for herself and for her son, and that was to let someone adopt him that could give him a stable home life, as heartbreaking as it was.
1: And I do have to mention I I was kind of reminded of Cicely Tyson and her sexual experience that she was totally naive about and that led to the birth of her daughter. It sort of reminded me a little bit about this. Just because they were both so naive, didn't really have the proper education about sex and how it works and the precautions that you have to take and their lives both went different directions. You know, Cicely kept her child and Mila gave hers up. But I think it's just yet another example of how different things can work for different people. And there's no right answer or wrong answer. It's just the choice that you make at the time. And we should be respectful of every single one of those, no matter what anyone decides to do.
2: It's so easy to pass judgment on someone. And you're looking at It's always the woman's problem, it seems like, in in this time frame. You know, the men are gone. Where are they? Who knows? And these young women are left to deal with this situation. Not that it's much better today, maybe a little bit better. So never. I, I would never pass judgment on anyone. They have to do what's best for them at that time.
1: And after she gave her son up for adoption... As we mentioned, she was in New York at this time. And so she ended up getting into dancing and Broadway and working for a a local newspaper briefly. She was a dancer in a show with Mae West. She had a pretty good first start of her career after she gave her son up for adoption and when she was young and staying in new york city so she did have some opportunities that came her way after that experience was behind her so it was it was good for her i think she was able to move on and she was able to then focus on her career i think this
2: was a good time for her in new york she at that point in new york beatniks were popular and i think she found sort of a kindred soul these type of people she felt she identified heavily with bucking the constraints of the time and she talked about it about how the late 40s and the 50s were such a tight hold especially on women and people were just ready to break out so i think she found a lot of kindred spirits through the beat generation she also at that time in addition to Everything else she was doing, she became what they call a cheesecake model where they would just be modeling in their swimsuits and be frolicking on the beach and look like they were having a great time. She talked about that she sold her art on the street. So I think it was a a creative time for her and probably where, you know, she learned a lot of lessons, especially after becoming pregnant and going through that. I feel like maybe she started getting a little bit of an education of what it was going to take to make it in this business.
1: Yeah, she kind of learned that she had to roll with the punches and also put up with a lot of bullshit if she was going to be successful. So, right, all good lessons. And it was also at this time that she met Marlon Brando, who ended up becoming one of her decades-long friendships. And I think the story was that she was in a play with another woman who had been like, wronged by Marlon Brando. Like, maybe they were sleeping together and he was ignoring her or something. And Mila showed up and yelled at him. And then I think they basically just connected and kicked off a friendship and also a sometimes sexual relationship. And she was close with him until until their deaths, right?
2: I think they were pretty close, at least until, like, the 70s or early 80s. I don't know that he was mentioned much after that, but he it could have been something behind the scenes with them. But they did have a friendship. It seemed like it, a lot of it was, once again, that Mila would, he liked to call up and rant and rave about his political views and what was going on in his life. And she talked about sometimes these conversations would be hours with her not saying anything and him just pontificating <laughs> on and on and on and once again she emotionally gave him apparently what he needed that kept him coming back but in fairness to him in later years when she did need some support he seemed to be one of the few people that stepped up and helped her a little bit financially here and there and maybe genuinely did try to help her at times
1: Yeah, I mean, my opinion of him is not super favorable. I just imagine him being that guy in a philosophy class, droning on and on about some bullshit that no one cares about. But I think that you're right, he was good to her in times when she really needed it. So I think he did value her friendship, and he did care about her as a person. But I think that he just kind of seemed like he was one of those people that's very self-involved and has a hard time seeing outside of himself.
2: Exactly. And here she is, what, 20 or 21 years old, and already she's had these deep relationships with Orson Welles and Marlon
1: Brando. So
2: just hang on to your hat because it gets better. (laughs)
1: She's, She's truly connected to all of the people who are big or about to become big in Hollywood at this time. And I love to the the story about how she met Howard Hawks and how things went downhill there, because during this time, like we said, she's in New York, she's acting in some shows. She was in one with Mae West that was not particularly successful because of Mae West, I think, as it's dictated in this book. So she ended up getting another role after that Mae West show that was sort of a little bit of a precursor almost to her role of Vampira. It was a vaudeville act and she had a small part. And she was a vampire or a dead person? What was her what was her role? A dancing skeleton?
2: I don't know that she was particularly a vampire, but I know that she said she wore a lavender shroud and she had to lay in a coffin in the lobby. So maybe like a zombie-ish type person.
1: <laughs> mm, it sounded cool, but it didn't actually go anywhere. They only had maybe, did they even have one performance? I
2: think it was like one performance. This was not a long-term gig.
1: Yeah, I think it was supposed to be something more long term, but the show got panned. And then she had at the time was it that she and I again, I'm like fuzzy on these details, but I think it was that she got a favorable write up by somebody that she knew in the newspaper business because she had a column in a newspaper for a brief period in New York. And so she had some contacts. And so she got a favorable review for the show. And. Somehow Howard Hawks ended up seeing it or hearing about it. And they wanted to offer her a contract. She was offered a contract. And I think that it was, she was supposed to be in a in a film that had a screenplay that was r- going to be written by William Faulkner. And she relocated to Los Angeles for this, but she ended up tearing up her contract in a fit of anger. And just kind of saying, like, no, fuck this. I don't want to do it anymore. And do you remember the details of that meeting with Howard Hawks? I just remember she comes into his office and rips up her contract.
2: Yes, apparently Howard Hawks, I'm sure most people listening to this know him, but he was a very powerful person in Hollywood at this time. He had basically, and I'm doing air quotes, discovered Lauren Bacall. So to be approached by Howard Hawks to make a film, this was legit. So this was her big break. She knew this, and he brought her back out to L.A., and she basically, they put her up in a hotel, and she just sat there for a week and didn't hear anything and didn't know what was going on. This movie that they were trying to make, which was about a vampire countess, was not coming along well, and... Myla apparently did not believe she was being treated correctly, and she did the unthinkable where she just went into his office one day, she had her contract in her hand that she had signed with him, and she basically told him off and said she was not being treated, this was all bullcrap, and she just ripped the contract up, threw it on his desk and said, go put this in your wastebasket, I'm done, and she walked out. I don't know of many aspiring young women that want to be famous that would have done that.
1: No. And I think, too, what we should note is she had already been sexually assaulted multiple times in different circumstances where she thought a job opportunity was going to crop up. But really, it was just somebody who wanted to exploit her and take photos of her topless or fondle her or do something shitty. So I think her guard was up. And also, you know, the Orson Welles situation. So I think that she was just kind of like, I'm not being treated properly. These people are telling me, I think they were telling her she needed to get her teeth fixed and then not giving her any instructions about when it was going to happen. Like it was feeling all vague and she just had it. And maybe she also kind of had her, I'm sure she had her hackles up over Hawks himself and was worried about another encounter where she would be sexually manipulated or assaulted. And so I think that she just, had it and could not deal with any more of that nonsense at the time.
2: It was such a production in Hollywood. It was controlled by so many awful old white men who sexually exploited so many women and so many men that came in trying to have a break in Hollywood. But I think when she thought that was going to happen and she refused to let it happen, so many times we see that when she didn't toe the line... They had the power to cancel her and it it happened more than once. It, it's a shame.
1: It was just the type of industry at the time and it still is to an extent where you just have to follow the rules and the people who don't get blackballed essentially and that's just how it is.
2: That's it. They can make you disappear.
1: Yep, and I think that she just did not have the type of attitude where she was going to kowtow to these people to get what she wanted. And so she missed out on a lot of opportunities because of it. But like we said, she's the type of person who would just pick her shit up and move on to the next thing, at this point in her life at least. Uh, So she did end up becoming a burlesque dancer and working at these popular places in Hollywood Because she did have this dance background, she had danced in these Broadway shows, and it was a talent of hers. And so it was something that she ended up doing. And she met a guy, his name was Dean Reisner. He ended up becoming a writer and was an aspiring writer at this time that she met him. And she ended up being in essentially a common law marriage with him for like six years. I don't really know how I would categorize their relationship, It seemed like he was interested in her when she was a nobody. But when she started to find some success in her career, he just didn't want to have it anymore. I kind of feel like he wanted to be the star in their relationship. And he was threatened by any success that she would have had.
2: I think you pegged that 110%. He was a former child actor. He had become pretty famous as a child working with Charlie Chaplin. You know, and he did find success later. But it seemed like he really, he had no respect for Mila's talent and for her vision. And he certainly did not support her in any of her career endeavors.
1: And like her mother, he was also an alcoholic, right? It seemed like yes. he was always drinking and they would have sort of violent altercations where he would be screaming at her and she would be locked in the bathroom. And he just seemed like a mean person who couldn't take anyone else being successful just seemed, again, like one of those self-centered men who need to be the center of the universe in their relationship. I think that Myla was very desperate to find love at the time and all through her life, as Anita said. And I think that she got herself into these situations where to an outsider, things clearly would not look right, but she kind of convinced herself that it was all fine or that she could put up with it, even though I feel like she did know deep down this isn't what this is supposed to feel like. It it was a
2: continuous search. I think a search for herself professionally, a search for herself on an emotional level. I just feel like she did not have, she wasn't equipped to handle the type of life that she found herself in. I can't imagine a worse environment to be in than Hollywood when you have the the type of person that she was and her trying to exist in that world it just it, it just was explosive
1: yeah i just don't think hollywood is the type of place where empathetic, sensitive people thrive. I think it's the type of place where you, the people who are successful are the people who can just, as as I said, just pick up something and move on to the next thing and put the past behind them and not dwell and not take things personally. And I think that she had a really hard time not taking things personally her entire career. I don't, I don't think she ever got good at just objectively looking at a situation and making decisions. It always felt, personal to her. She always seemed deeply hurt by rejection from men, from the industry, in all facets of her life. And I just don't think that she was in the place she needed to be if she was going to find lasting success. And I don't mean that with any type of judgment because I am not the type of person who could be successful in that arena. I would crumble. I would absolutely hate all of the things that you have to do and the compromises you have to make in order to get where you need to be. But I definitely think that she was not well fit for this type of career, even though she did have a lot of talent for it.
2: I think that's very insightful. And I agree also as well. I am I'm definitely could not be a type person that could be in that environment. Of course, I never had any inclination to try to be a Hollywood star or movie star or anything, but I don't know. I think that she, there was creativity in her and a brilliant mind, and she was looking for an outlet in so many ways that in one way this, this Hollywood was the worst place for, her, and in another way I think that there was no other place that she felt she could survive, like she had to be there. So it was it was just a, a sad trade-off of, of what she had to go through
1: but she did have a flash of success with vampyra and yeah we should talk about that because that's the exciting stuff where you actually get to see her really shine and you get to see what she can do and although it was short-lived it was magical and i wish i had been alive to see those airings, because it's the exact type of thing that I, and I know you, Anita, would have loved.
2: I would have. I would have been up every week at midnight to watch her. She was totally fascinating. And going into this, I knew of the vampire character. I didn't, unfortunately, know all of the history about it. I did not know the woman behind Vampira, but I knew her. I had seen her, snippets of her work from different things. She really created an iconic, I guess, symbol that for me, I believe that it really started, it, it changed a part of America. I, I think it really helped America to view things a little bit differently. And it kind of pushed the envelope of what was being allowed at the time on TV. So I think that she had a big part in just creating a whole new genre that still flourishes today. She she is the mother of any horror host or anything. When you think of anything to do with horror, I, I think
1: of her at this point. She is synonymous with that. And I think that she is also the type of person who had such a presence in this role of Vampira that people automatically assumed that that is who she was in her personal life. It was like people couldn't realize that she was just playing a character, or maybe they just wanted to believe that she really was that character. You'll see that in the newspaper headlines, she was very much treated mila nurmi as vampira as if that is just who she was and she was being herself and not playing a character that she created
2: and i think for many years maybe even mila had trouble i think she was able to slip into vampira and and become someone she wanted to be someone strong you know sexually alluring any man would want her, but they would fear her. She had power. She had fame. And I think that for many years, maybe that line was blurred of who was who and and where was Mila? And I think eventually she she was able to separate and to distinguish herself and what her needs were. But at the time, it was just such a heady onslaught she became famous so fast and even at the time I think she was in her early 30s so she was more mature but at the time that the success that she had almost overnight pretty much was incredible for anyone to handle.
1: Yes I think it would have been hard to come to terms with that fast of a rise and then also fall. Yeah so
2: Lindsay tell us tell us how Vampira came to be tell us the the events that led up to the creation of vampyra
1: well she was working as a model for a fashion designer named Rudy Gernrich, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing correctly, but that that was his name He is the one who created the topless bikini and the thong <laughs> I'm seeing this in your notes I did not know that and I'm not surprised she was working
2: for him it seems it seems perfectly. Like, that would have to be the way that it is.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And she, at this time, we should note, she kind of went through, there's some stuff about body image and potential eating disorder that comes up in this biography written by her niece. So she already at this time had kind of been trying her hand at modeling, and she had gotten some rejections where they told her that she wasn't thin enough, essentially, or that her figure wasn't correct. So she had gone into this extreme dieting and waist training type mentality. So at this point, she had already gotten pretty slender, and through this guy, this Rudy Gernrich, she ended up getting an invitation to this really big deal Halloween party in Hollywood. It was Lester Norton's Ball Carib Halloween Extravaganza, and it was a party that had a lot of elite gay people, political radicals, a lot of campy glamour. And so she put together a costume for it that was sort of like a precursor to her vampire character, where it was a tattered black gown. She cinched her waist, which was already tiny. She had a black wig, a lot of pancake makeup, tons of cleavage, high heels, and she ended up winning first place in the Halloween costume contest. And so, this producer named Hunt Stromberg Jr., who ended up going on to produce things like Beverly Hillbillies, Hogan's Heroes, and Green Acres, he spotted her at the Ball Caribe and he ended up contacting her and approaching her about hosting a late night horror show for a local Los Angeles station called KABC. And so he basically told her, we're interested in you, you know, we like the look that you put together, but we need you to come up with a full persona. And you have, I forget how long, but it was a couple of days or something ridiculous. And so she kind of channeled what she knew, which was cartoons. And she thought a lot about, Charles Adams and the Adams family, but she decided to kind of make that her own and take the concept of the housewife and make that person into a sexy, macabre vampire who just had homicidal tendencies and hated American popular culture. And so she melded all of these things together And basically put together the character and came into the station with these crazy long nails and the teeny tiny waist and the whole vibe already ready-made and presented herself in the character to Stromberg. And they loved it. And they decided to give her a contract to host this midnight horror movie show. So they would have, I don't know how many movies would be on each segment, but there would be a couple of movies and Vampyra would come on in between them and do a little sketch. And they were always like really funny and really creepy and had total commitment to the character of this kind of homicidal, tarantula loving, creepy, deliciously spooky woman
2: deliciously spooky i love that that is the perfect explanation for it she personified sex and horror together so well i couldn't believe they said that she had a 17 inch waist when she did this and to me that's just that's That's incredibly horrific. She talked about how she, to obtain that, she was already thin as a rail, but she wouldn't eat for two days before filming on Saturdays. She would go to a steam bath that Friday night. Then she invented this cream using papaya powder, and she would put it around her waist, and she would wrap it in in a rubber tube and that's how she slept in the night before and she said her waist had to get that teeny or she wouldn't fit in her costume and we're talking about this was not a, a high money production the movies they showed were pretty horrific they could only buy the movie for a hundred dollars so they weren't getting top of the line wonderful movies they were getting these really for the most part pretty shitty movies but her character Vampira had to have been the main draw for people i don't i believe that people i think it was just mind blowing i don't think people had ever seen anything like this especially on tv when you think of the censorship how leave it to beaver was popular lucille ball was one of the top shows at the time and here comes Vampira, and she is seductive she would walk in with an orgasmic scream And just go, oh, I feel so much better. I mean, she was just like sex on a stick Mm -hmm. at a time when no one had seen that.
1: No, not at all. And like she was getting past the censors with a lot of this stuff. Like there's no way they would have let you show an orgasm on television at the time. But her scream was basically an orgasm. And she had a ton of cleavage. And it's almost like she was using the spookiness to get around the sexiness in some way. And it was just brilliant. It was not a thing that you saw at the time at all. And now, of course, we're more used to sex and horror intermingling and that being almost a part of the genre in many cases. But at the time, it totally wasn't. She basically pioneered that completely
2: she did I think I read the first two episodes she just winged the dialogue before they realized that they were such a hit and actually got writers in there to do some of her dialogue but I, I have a feeling that she probably improvised a lot of that on the show she had a pit spider Rolo who would be behind her as she sat on a Victorian couch what i thought was incredible at the time she was she said she was making $59.66 per week for being vampira and she said much of that she had to buy her own makeup and add things to her costume on her own so that's nothing she said when well, yeah when it was all said and done she was probably spending just about as much money as she was making now will say that she came up with the concept of Vampire. it was totally her her husband Dean is the one that actually came up with the name. I think that she presented him with two names. Hers was like Enchantra and his was Vampira and they decided on Vampira instead. So her her husband did contribute to the name, but I believe that's all he contributed to because he totally resented her success, as you said. And years later, after a divorce, he's like, Yeah, I really messed up. I just threw a million bucks in the toilet by not supporting her and helping her with that character.
1: Yeah. And I found that just so disappointing. Like, if you're in a true partnership with someone, why would you not want them to be successful? Like, what a piece of shit you must be to be so threatened by their success. You should, you should want to help them in any way that you can and reap the benefits of that. It's just bizarre to me. It's sad.
2: So needless to say, she was a huge hit. This was a local L.A. station. This was like your local broadcasting. You know, when I was a kid, we had local broadcasting, and it was so hokey and so ridiculous. But she went international. People learned of her. The craziness that happened, it just hit like a wildfire. All of a sudden, Life magazine Wanted to photograph her. And and the and spread actually came out in June of 1954. That really opened up an international audience for her. And that was very unusual for this being a local TV show. And I loved, um, Nurmi said, they said, well, what did everybody think about it? And she said, society was alarmed and delighted.
1: <laughs>
2: Which I thought encompassed it exactly.
1: Yeah, who could want anything else? And she was Emmy-nominated. For most outstanding female television personality of nineteen fifty four she did not win, but she did get to go to the Emmys and the book did not include any photos of that, but I really wanted to see if there were any pictures of her because they said that she was wearing was it an ice blue gown with hair to match? yeah, something like that. I just really wanted to see what that looked like.
2: Oh, I would have loved to have seen it like she was she was lady Gaga at that <laughs> and she was like the 1955 or 1954 lady gaga yeah she she did get to go to the emmys i'm so glad and it's and it's funny to say we'll get into it but by the time she was going to the emmy she was already having trouble on the show and it was already in its spiral but i'm so glad that she got to go and and have and just have her night Just have a night.
1: Like you said, She, the show, what happened with it is not shocking. It reminds me of every story you hear in the music industry where other people own parts of the rights and it becomes a big struggle over who has intellectual property. And it became a situation where the station obviously did not want to give her what she needed in order to... Be successful, they would nickel and dime her at every turn, like make her pay for all of the extras. And they, I think, owned 49% of the rights to the character of Vampyra, and she owned 51%. But the contract she had with them had a bunch of stipulations about what she could and couldn't do, how long she had to be loyal to them how long she had to give up Vampyra after her contract was dissolved. So there were a lot of different things that prevented her from branching out and having other opportunities at the time. Even though she owned the majority rights to the character they still had a lot of hold over her and she didn't really have that much room to advocate for herself to get herself into a better financial or career position.
2: Yeah, she started out definitely at a disadvantage. I'm actually shocked that they somehow didn't wrangle the rights for Vampira from her, but she was tenacious. She was able to stop them at least from doing that. And I think that contributed a lot to the demise of the show was basically they couldn't own it. They couldn't take it, run with it. They had to deal with her. And I think that it was part of, well, that's fine. You won't let us have our way. We're just going to shut you down. That was part of it. But I wanted to mention before we talk about how vampire ended was that she met a very interesting man during her vampire heyday some of you may have heard of this gentleman his name was James Dean and apparently he came she saw him at a party and he looked rumpled he was in a rumpled up suit and he looked like he was having the worst time in the world and she was just drawn to him and the next day, there was a restaurant, was it called Googly's? Was that the name of it? Googly's. Yeah. Right? Googies. that all the new hipsters would go to, not the guard of Hollywood, but the new hipsters would go into this little diner and just sit and it sounded like smoke cigarettes and drink coffee all day and just look and see what everybody else was doing. And James Dean showed up there. And Milo went up to him, and apparently they had some type of just instant connection. It's that type, every once in a while in your life, you just meet someone that instantly you just jive with them. And you can just feel their kindred spirit. And that's what happened with her and James Dean. Their relationship was never sexual. I think... From what I'm understanding, Myla felt more as a surrogate mother to him because his mother had died when he was young. And I think that James Dean had his own issues at that time. He was a an emotionally damaged soul that was unfortunately coming into the jaws of Hollywood at this time. So I think that especially in the beginning of their friendship, they clung to each other. And even though it wasn't sexual, it was a very deep, friendship that they had
1: and honestly i am surprised that nobody has made a movie about this aren't you it really seems like somebody would take that story and craft it into almost a fictional retelling based on truth because there are a lot of moments that she describes that her niece describes in the book that feel very cinematic to me Like, her and James Dean just had this type of friendship where they would continuously play pranks on each other, like, really dark pranks. And they and another friend named Jack Simmons would kind of just ride around town. Jack had a hearse that he drove (laughs) as a car, and they would ride around in his hearse and go to cemeteries and, like, smoke a joint and steal things. And they just seemed to be... The type of really kind of cool outsiders who had, you know, some touches of mental illness and depression and but that all kind of found each other and found this little makeshift family.
2: I think that's a good point. I would love for a talented team of women, a woman writer, a woman director, to contact Sandra Nimi as fast as you can and talk with her because i think just a movie about this time period maybe a movie that would briefly show the way that myla created vamp vampira but to and, and james dean got to hollywood but to have this movie really focus on them coming together and just that couple of months before he became famous because at this time he was not famous he was still trying to break in he was still treated like trash in hollywood And at that point, Milo was actually the more famous one. She was the one that people were pushing him aside and wanting her autograph. And she was the flavor of the moment, the girl of the moment, as she said. I think that that would be a beautiful movie that could be made about that time.
1: Look at that. We just gave you a free idea. If you're listening to this, you want to make this movie, make the movie. You should. I wish it existed.
2: I I do, too. But... As, as time would have it, James Dean did become very, very famous. And as he became famous and more in demand, their friendship waned. I don't believe from, from the book that we read from her niece, he did not totally cut her out of his life. Things did change between them. There was still a connection with them. And she still had contact with him right up until his untimely death. But I do believe that that was a hurt for her that they seemed to to grow apart as he became more famous. I do believe that that hurt her. But for the rest of her life, in any interviews I saw with her, I think that she always said that he was the only person that she finally felt she had made a connection with. It would be like being on the planet Mars with all the Martians, and then another Earthling showed up. And you're like, oh my God, where have you been? I think that that was her connection with James Dean. She felt like she had finally found a true kindred spirit in someone. And I I feel like even after his death that she always felt that connection with him. And I do hope that if there is any type of energy or life or whatever you want to call it after death, I do hope that theirs was reunited. And I feel like if... If there's anything good in this world, it was.
1: And anyone who is listening to the new season of You Must Remember This will be not surprised to find that Hedda Hopper ends up coming up in this book and that she is sort of, I don't want to say responsible, but she is the one who kind of conveys some information that I think drives a little bit of a wedge between myla and james dean and do you remember this it just totally broke my heart the comment that james was was quoted as having said in her column
2: yes i do remember that hit a hopper i am listening to the new series of you must remember this i'm totally enthralled with it it's so good but yes i'm not surprised And I do believe that she, in her column, took his words out of context, even though they were a little harsh. Because later in Hedda's autobiography, she kind of backtracked. And what he said was a little less harsh, but it was still kind of harsh. Paraphrasing it from what I remember of the comment, it was like she asked him, you know, are you still with the lady that plays vampire or whatever? And he was like, oh, you know, I just wanted to see if she really believed that all the horror stuff she spouts and there wasn't really much to her and she didn't really know a lot and I wouldn't be seen with her. It was something to that effect from what I remember.
1: Yeah, what he's quoted as saying in her column is, I don't date witches and I dig cartoons even less vampira was merely a subject about which i wanted to learn and after engaging the girl in conversation i found out that she knew absolutely nothing and is only obsessed with her vampira makeup mm. which just knowing everything we do about their friendship is a slap in the yeah. fucking face
2: yeah that that that's heartbreaking because they did share a lot together and trust me Myla Nermy was a lot more than her her costume and her makeup.
1: I think that what makes me really sad is that I could totally see a young James Dean being persuaded into saying shitty things by some publicist who's telling him, oh, James, you can't be seen with that Myla vampire character because she's too sexualized or too evil or too whatever for your image and you have to distance yourself. So we need you to say X, Y, Z to keep your contract. Like I just think that people are so frequently manipulated because they had to fit a very narrow image that publicists could make palatable to large swaths of people who are seeing movies and that people got manipulated or persuaded into saying things that they didn't necessarily believe in. And I'm not saying that that absolves James Dean from having said a shitty thing, but I do think that there are so many different levers at play manipulating you and pulling you in certain directions in order for you to have success in Hollywood that I understand how something like that would have happened even if he felt bad about it later or didn't necessarily believe it.
2: Yeah, we have to think where James Dean came from. At this time, he was in his, what, early 20s? He grew up on a pig farm in Indiana, so this was a young man, and and I know he had been through some emotional trauma. So, like you said, not to excuse his behavior, maybe more to explain. And also, as I think I've said probably ad nauseum on here, life is full of grays; it's not black and white. So, yes, he did a shitty thing. It appears that him and Mila were able to discuss it later. He just put it off as, oh, Hedda Hopper writes anything. Don't pay any attention to it, whatever, whatever. But it's still a blow. Words can really just pierce your heart. And I'm sure that that pierced Mila's when she read that.
1: Yeah, I know I personally would not be able to forgive someone for something like that. I would I would have cut him out and said, fuck you yeah. forever. But that's just me. And me. (laughs) So why don't you talk a little bit about the end of the vampire show? Because it's so depressing that I don't know if I can do it. (laughs) Yeah, I
2: know. God damn it. I'm just so upset about it. But yes, so the vampire show was actually doing very well. But some things were going on in the background that were not great. The main thing I feel like was... Hunt Stromberg Jr., the one that originally found her, and another one of the owners of KABC who was Selig Selgman. They basically wanted to own Vampyra, and we talked about this briefly earlier, that Nurmi would not give in to them. So that was a big contention point with them. Also, in the age of what I would say is the latest flavor of the moment, cancel culture. There was a lot of religious nuts at the time that did a writing campaign to the station to get her canceled. They felt like she was corrupting the youth. And even though I believe that they were a small minority of people that wanted her canceled, when you her probably her main audience was like teenagers or young men, and they're not going to galvanize a writing campaign to keep her. So what you had was a targeted assassination of writing in. So the minority of people knew how to focus in, knew how to be vindictive. And so they started getting all these letters. So it made them think like, oh, my gosh, everybody out here hates her, which was absolutely, I believe, not the case whatsoever. And I believe one of the final nails in the coffin, pun intended, was that she became what we would say divorced from her common law husband, Dean Reisner. At this time it just it had fallen apart. They could not do it. And that announcement came out. So that combined with everything else, they just basically came to her and they officially canceled the Vampira show on April the 16th, 1955. And Nurmi did not take it well. She pretty much spiraled. She the way that I would put it is lost her shit. She ended up having some type of episode where she cut all her hair off. She was like bald. Her mother at this time came to live with her to try to help her to try to kind of ease her back and this was a pattern that happened a lot in her life is she would kind of have a little bit of success in something she would fall apart and her mom would swoop in to help her but I don't know how much help it was and at this point the bad thing was that per her contract she could not perform the vampiric character for six months so she couldn't even go out and capitalize on what she owned You know, she could have still been making appearances and maybe started trying to book some of her own stuff. But for six months, she just had to sit. And in six months, you can be forgotten pretty fast in the entertainment world. So that was another bad thing that she had to deal with.
1: Yeah, it's depressing to me that she could have such a fan base from a local TV broadcast to international fame to... Six months later and everyone forgets you and they're on to the next thing. It just kind of makes you realize that any type of ego you have about this type of visibility or success is unfounded because you will be forgotten so quickly. (laughs) You think that things are so monumental and important and then in the snap of a finger, you are just dust in the wind and nobody can even recall what it is that you did. It's sad because it doesn't work that way with people who make mistakes. Quite the opposite. But I think that it really crushed her because she knew all of this. I think that she had been in the industry long enough at this point that she saw the writing on the wall, and she knew how hard it was going to be for her to come back after a six-month break and reprise that role. So I understand why she had a depressive episode over this because she she had to have known that it was going to be the end of Vampire as it once was. as We
2: know it. What is truly amazing to me is even while all of this was going on, some other very significant events happened to her. And honestly, they were not very good. One of them was around this time she met another young upcoming actor who had not yet made it famous but later would become very famous, Anthony Perkins. And she became, I guess, kind of lovers with him maybe. I don't know how much that was projected. So Anthony Perkins kind of came into her life at this point. He was in no way famous but he was on the cusp of it just like James Dean was at the time. Also another huge event that impacted her life forever was that James Dean died he died in September of 1955 a few months after her show was canceled which sent her spiraling so she decided to get a fresh start she ended up moving to New York while she was there she had not been there that long and she was in some lady's apartment and there was a knock at the door Some man who was asking about the lady that used to live there said, you know, she here and no, she's not here. He forced his way in and basically terrorized her in a situation for two hours where he beat her, threatened to rape her, choked her. They ended up tumbling down steps together. She fell down the steps numerous times trying to get away from him. She would talk with him, plead with him, get him calm, and then it would all start all over again. It was just a terrific hostage-type situation. She finally got away. All she had on was her pants. She was topless. She ran in the streets. People wouldn't even help her. Finally, she got some help. He was arrested. But how do you think the press covered it? It was Vampira that got hurt. And there was a tragic photo of her that just broke my heart where she was at the police station. And uh, I don't think she was at the police station. I think maybe she was talking to reporters. I'm not sure. But they were like, show us your bruises. And she was showing off her bruises like in a cheesecake model pose. And I just have to think that at that point, she was just out of her mind with what had happened to her.
1: Taking any type of photo while somebody is going through a traumatic situation is just beyond unforgivable and tacky and horrible and exploitative. And who knows what was happening in her head at the time. She had just suffered something terrible on top of all of the other things that had happened to her recently. You know, James Dean's death, the cancellation of her show, she was going through it. So it's shitty that anyone would have tried to capitalize on it. Yes, and she just
2: had to revert into this persona of oh yes here's my bruises you know when when no one was really taking it seriously that she was almost brutally murdered well this kind of put the kibosh on new on new york she instantly moved back to la where despite all of the horrible shitty things that had happened there she probably felt safer there which is sad in itself and she was still At this point, her relationship with Anthony Perkins had kind of come to the point where his star was rising. Hers, of course, we know was falling. And he would only call her when he needed to vent, when he needed someone to listen to his troubles. And he just treated her shitty. And he would only go to a party if nothing else better came open. But if he got a better invitation, he would just call up, you know, at the last minute and cancel with her. And she just took it. She kind of turned everything and kind of fixated on him at this point but just when you think she's down time went on and surprisingly things started to kind of turn around for her in 1956. Things kind of started opening back up for her again. Some things that happened was she was offered a Las Vegas show with Liberace. She got the gig when Bella Lagosi, who had been a friend of hers and kind of a mentor, and she had done some local comedy television shows as Vampyra with him during the time. He became too ill to work in the Liberace Liberace production company reached out to her, so she was able to go and do some what looks like bizarre shows with Liberace. Bizarre kind of goes in line with Liberace. She also... At the time, there was an American International Pictures was formed, and they asked her to be Vampira for like a two-day promo gig in San Francisco for a, a horror film that they had just completed. She was able to do that. And all of this new interest in her, she was contacted by another TV network, KHJ-TV in Los Angeles. They were not as popular as KABC, but they were like, hey, let's, let's try to do a new vampira show. So at this point, all of a sudden, she went from not having two nickels to rub together to she was suddenly in demand. And it came at a really good time because when she didn't have two nickels to rub together, she had been approached by a man who said, hey, do you want to make a movie? We'll give you $200 to perform in this movie that I'm working on with none other than Ed Wood. At the time, they were going to call it Grave Robbers from Outer Space, but it was later renamed as Plan 9 from Outer Space. And at the time, Ed Wood did not have a good reputation in Hollywood. He was basically a joke. And Nermi knew, hey, if I do anything with him, any, any chance I have of resurrecting Vampira or even having a career will be just no way. It'll kill me. But she needed the money. So at that time, she had agreed to do the movie. It was nowhere near ready. It wasn't getting the financial backing. But then right after that is when all these other projects came about, but she had committed to it and she had accepted the money to do it. And I just think that it was ironic that eventually that is where I believe a lot of people remember her from because there is actually film of her <laughs> being vampire in this very sad <laughs> movie that was made. So I just thought that that was kind of ironic how that all came about.
1: Yeah, it's very strange. And if anyone has seen the movie edward I forget who plays Vampira in that movie. It was
2: actually Tim Burton's girlfriend. Oh no, it's right on the edge. edge of think of it. It's driving I just Lisa Marie. That's it. I... Lisa wow, Marie, which is weird considering. Yeah. The next thing. That we'll probably talk about is the Elvis connection, but the Elvis yeah, connection. Yeah, it's uh, that that movie kind of also probably brought Vampira to a whole new generation of people, and I just think that it's funny that it was through what is considered one of the worst movies ever made. And I did watch it recently, and I would concur with that <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that that is a legacy for her. I don't think she she had that on her radar at the time that that would be what she was known for. And we did just mention when she was doing her show with Liberace, she met yet another up-and-coming superstar who was a young Elvis Presley.
1: Yeah, And what do you know about her relationship with Elvis?
2: Well, I know that when she met him, Liberace had her friend Jack Simmons, who I think they had kind of a love-hate relationship. He went to Las Vegas with her because he had a car. And she needed to get her own transportation out there. So he kind of went with her as her wingman so he could bask in her Liberace glory. And her and Jack got invited by the Liberace crew to see some of the shows in Vegas. And one of them was this new and upcoming young man who was in no way famous at this time, Elvis Presley. Well, the audience that he came out to was a bunch of gray-haired, blue-haired old people. And here was this man gyrating on stage, and they were appalled by it. Milo was just flabbergasted. She never thought she'd seen anything like him, and she instantly knew she had to meet him. And after it was all over with, Elvis was just walking somewhere, and she just kind of approached him and said, Hey, I know your performance didn't go that great. I'm a performer, too. And the way that she had it is... She was staying in kind of like a dumpy motel room, even though Liberace had suites at the best hotels, she had to pay for on hotel. So she was staying at a kind of a sleazy hotel, and she kicked Jack out of the room, and she knew that she wanted to have some fun with this young man in her hotel room, and they did. But what she said was it was kind of disappointing that he was very young. I think maybe he was like, I don't even know, like 19 at the time or something, 20 maybe. And he apparently did not perform well in bed, but she didn't hold it against him. She said that, you know, at the time, maybe he just hadn't had a lot of experience. But that's how she met Elvis. And I think their relationship, if you can call it that, just kind of lasted while they were both in Vegas and he was very kind of shy and awkward. And she was like something probably he had never met before in his life. And I think maybe it was like a two week thing. And once again, the Vegas show for her ended and Elvis went on and became very famous. And I think that that was pretty much the end of it.
1: And just once again, one of those young men on the cusp of stardom that she encounters and has a brief fling or connection with. And then they end up rising to stardom and she just kind of stagnates a little bit and it's sad so far in her
2: life who have we had we've had Orson wells we've had anthony perkins we've had marlon brando we've had james dean and now we have elvis so it's pre- that's pretty incredible
1: yeah that's quite the roster of men
2: so at this time she puts herself into this new production of the reboot of the Vampire show Unfortunately, it was not very successful. One thing that her niece said was that she felt like Mila was still concentrated on her ever waning relationship with Anthony Perkins. That was distracting her. The writing for this show was pretty horrible. The sets were cheesy. They just didn't have the money. She was heavily censored, so she couldn't come on and be the true vampire that people wanted her to be. There wasn't the shock factor. So there was a contract of 13 shows. They only did 12 shows. I think one of her last sponsors finally pulled out. So the show was unfortunately canceled in August of 1956. One thing that happened after that that I thought was very interesting in The Vampire vein was in November of that same year, 1956, she was hired by Disney. And for two days, she became the life action reference model for the character oh, Maleficent. Maleficent. I can never say that. Thank you. Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty. So I, I just thought that that was very interesting because this character, Cartoon from Disney was something that I grew up with, and I always liked the evil queen, and now it makes perfect sense to me why I did.
1: Yeah, in Disney movies, the evil characters are always the best, so at least she got some opportunities to do other things, but pretty... Small potatoes, especially compared to some of the men that she had dated. You know, she was just as talented and they had meteoric rises, but she got these small opportunities here and there, but she wasn't getting movie roles for well known directors or anything. I don't think that there was ever a point in her pre or post vampira career, really where she was seen as that type of actor. But I think she could have been, but she just really never she just really never got the opportunities. It was all smaller roles and things like this. It does make sense that in her later years she would run into some financial hardship, which as I said is understandable, but it's also just pretty depressing considering she pioneered this character of Vampira and that She really is the one who started this trend of having horror hosts. And I know in 1958, Universal Studios released a package of 52 horror movies to television networks. And so much like with The Vampire Show, a bunch of local stations ended up realizing that this was a great opportunity. And they ended up just following the format that she had laid out for them, where they have a horror host for the horror program. And so Myla Nurmi was really the one that started off this entire trend. Without her, this wouldn't have been a thing. Basically, she created a whole career type and sub-industry that she didn't receive any financial credit for. And I think that that is really a shame
2: it truly is now any horror host past and present will say she is the mother of all horror hosts she she set the gold standard for that and I think in later years, she did get that recognition. But at the time, it it sure didn't put any money in her pocket, and it didn't make her life any easier. She, I mean, as early as, even as early as 1962, which wasn't that far from 1956, she said in an LA Times interview, at this point, she had had to branch out to other ways to live. And she said, I'm a lady linoleum layer, and if things are slow in the linoleum, I can do carpentry, make drapes, or refinish furniture. And at one point, sometime in her later years, she cleaned celebrity houses for 99 cents an hour. She ended up later opening up an antique store, it, Vampira's Attic. But no matter what she did, I mean, she just had to go. It was always seemed like she, she was able to stay one step ahead just to keep herself surviving. And she just had to morph and do anything she could to live.
1: Yeah, and that's just no way to survive, really, I think, in your 40s. You know, she would have been in her 40s at the time when she was laying linoleum. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that at all, but it's just totally not what she set out to do. It's just something else just to keep money on the table after so many other opportunities have not panned out.
2: I can't emphasize enough, this lady had a brilliant mind. If you just watch her documentary on the Tubi network, it's free go into YouTube, pull up some of her clips, just read about her, the things that she would write and say. And in the 60s, she did start trying to put together some of her memoirs. There's some old reel-to-reel tapes that are in pretty poor shape that she left behind. She could have really been a writer. She was so clever and so brilliant. And her talents, for many reasons that we probably all understand, maybe just being a woman and not be willing to to compromise her integrity. She was basically just made to disappear and to struggle to survive. One thing that I thought was so sad is she said, I kept my figure camera ready within three days for 20 years until I realized Hollywood would not be calling. And then she said she realized, even if I had kept my figure this time, she was going into her 40s. She said it would have, in her words, been ridiculous for a woman of her age to have a figure like that. And I just felt like that that was such a sad statement. That there was a part of her that would have come back if anyone had just reached out that it did not happen.
1: Yeah, as we all know. Hollywood is not the type of industry to reach out to somebody who had their star fall. It's just that happens to you and then you're forgotten and you're swept aside. And that was it. You had your chance and you didn't make it pan out. And so now we don't care about you. And life went on for
2: her. I mean, she did from time to time. It seemed like people would gravitate towards her even when she went into reclusion. Reclusion became just a way of life for her. She loved animals. She rescued animals. Animals really became the saving grace for her. They became, she always had animals as her constant companions, and I think they were solace for her. She would always be contacted by different groups. I think I read in her book that in the 70s, the punks came and and discovered her and would ask her to do Different projects it seemed like people discovered that terrible film and they were fanatics of Plan nine from outer space and and they would try to find her and, and want to get to know her and various projects would come along and she was always seemed to be so gracious with people. She was willing within a certain extent to open herself up, but there was a big part of her that she always kept private and let very few people at the time into her inner
1: world. Yeah, it seemed like she had just been burned so many times that she was totally over everything.
2: I think we need to talk about what happened in 1981. She was contacted by KHJTV in LA again about a horror show reboot they wanted to do of Vampire, in which she would play Vampire's mother. And I won't go into great detail, but she basically agreed that she would not be the mother, but come on in different character roles if they would let her find and groom the next vampira, and they agreed to it. But behind the scenes, they went and hired someone else to be the new vampire. and according to Myla's story, she had no input on it, and the person they hired was Cassandra Peterson, who most of you would better probably better know as the character Elvira. She was supposed to be the next vampira. Uh, Nurmi was not happy with this, and she pulled the plug on it and said, "No way." And then she went and and sued them. And they went ahead and kind of changed the show up and turned the character into Elvira and made some changes. But for me, when I look at the character, I see very, very much of the vampira character in Elvira. And after ten years of this lawsuit rummaging around, they were able to successfully just keep it at bay and apparently Mila Nurmi had to drop the lawsuit and she did not win it. So I just feel like that that was something that we should mention because I do believe that probably Elvira is the most famous horror movie host that would be known worldwide at this point in time.
1: Yeah, and I mean she was able to take that character and spin it off into video games and comic books and VHS tapes. And I know there's a Hulu Elvira hosted, I think it's something like 31 Days of Halloween. So I don't know enough about Alvira to know how much she has personally profited off of that franchise, off of the character but it does seem like she used, and I don't even want to say she, the people behind her, the, the network who approached her infringed on the Vampira character without properly compensating or consulting her. And in the book by Myla Nurmi's niece, she has in the acknowledgements section, she says, and to those vultures who picked through Myla's memorabilia without permission and continue to profit from her intellectual property, you know who you are, enough said. And I think that part of that, at least a small part of that, must apply a little bit to Alvira. Because I do think that she took a lot of liberties with the creation of Vampira by Milo Nurmi and used it for her own character. Without giving proper credit. And it's always upsetting when that happens.
2: Absolutely. And I think most people don't know about that. I certainly did not know about this until I got more into researching Nermi's life. And one thing that struck me that Nermi had said was so many times the inventor of something never makes any money off the invention. And that's what happened to her. She never got to, she said, I invented it, but I never got to cash into the bank. But the people, that took it from me, That boy, they could cash it in. So I think that she she unfortunately saw that and had to accept it because she just did not have the financial means to pursue everyone that was stealing and robbing from her.
1: And once you start digging more and more into Hollywood, you'll find that that is definitely something true. But just because you have a great idea or you're a brilliant mind or you're able to do really creative things that does not mean that you will be successful. You have to be tenacious. You have to be business-minded. You have to make the right contacts. There are just so many different things at play. And so it doesn't surprise me that oftentimes the people who are actually the ones who use their own brain juice to think of the thing that becomes popular don't end up capitalizing off of it. I think it's a lot of times because people that have that capacity – that creativity and that brilliance don't have the other side of the the business side and the contacts and the schmoozing and all of the other stuff that it takes. So I think that as much as we like to think of Hollywood or the entertainment industry as being a place for creatives, I almost kind of think that that's not entirely accurate. It's It's much more than that. And Oftentimes, it's the less creative people who end up being the people at the top.
2: Creative types go there, and many creative types get a awakening in what Hollywood truly is all about, which is money, 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 and power, power, power unfortunately.
1: So don't get it twisted that it's that it's a place for creatives to go and thrive. It's a place for creatives to go and get chewed up and spit out and maybe a small percentage of them find some success.
2: The one thing that I would like to say, not to end this on a on a downer note, but she did have good years in her later years. There were good times. She was able to forge some lasting friendships in her later years, people that truly cared about her and that she would let in a little bit closer to her. One of these was her niece. Her niece was able to find her, reconnect with her, have a nice long visit with her. Even though after the visit, they didn't really stay in close contact with each other, I think that there was a connection there that really brought a lot of happiness To her niece and thankfully got us the wonderful book that she wrote as well she I think was able to live in peace she uh, just basically ended up in a very small apartment in LA in her little neighborhood where she stayed she was able to get her groceries she was able to sell some paintings once again and she was always able to make enough of a living and I think she had some friends that would help pay her rent. And she ended up having a long life. She passed away on January 10th, 2008. She was 85 years old. And when they found her, she was sitting in a a plastic chair that she had in in her home with her feet propped up on a table. And it looked like that she had passed away peacefully. And she was buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And that was a place where she had been years earlier. And she had told someone she wanted to be buried there. And she even knew the spot where she wanted to be buried and where her her tombstone is today is the spot that she wanted. So I was happy (laughs) for that in a weird way, that she was able to be interred there where she wanted to be. And Lindsay, I would love for you, there was one big revelation that came out while her niece Sandra Nimi was writing this book, and it referred back to her son that she gave up for adoption.
1: Yeah, so I forget get how exactly she ended up finding him
2: it was ancestry.com
1: mm, oh yes that's right so they ended up finding the son of orson wells and myla Nurmi. his name is david putter and he lives in vermont he had worked for a long time as a lawyer and he also had played football with Joe Biden. And they are apparently still friends to this day. And there's a really cute segment on him, I think, from it must be his local news station, where you can see him talking about finding out that Vampira was his mother. And I think it's just very cool that they were able to find him and that he had a good life for all intents and purposes, and he was successful, and he seems happy. He has a, a really long-term partner, and they live together, and it just seems like everything sort of worked out as well as it could have for him. And now he has this wild story to tell about how Vampira and Orson Welles were his parents.
2: I know. I love that so much. And in her book, Sandra Neamey talked about how they've really established a relationship with each other, and that she, at the time she was writing the book, was planning on going to visit him. Now I know we had a little pandemic that got in the way, but I hope she was either able to visit him or is now able to visit him, and that they can really become close in, in their later years. Because her niece is now retired, and I just think that that was just a beautiful way, maybe, to end this. That this relationship is able to be established. And I, I, I just have to believe that Mila would have been very, very happy about that.
1: Yes, I think she would have. I only wish, well, and again, I, I don't know if she would have wanted this. I was going to say that I only wish that she could have, in her life, had some type of closure where she knew that things had worked out for him. But again, I don't know. She doesn't really ever talk about longing to know what happened with him so maybe maybe that isn't even information that she would have wanted i'm just kind of speculating but i think it's so nice that they were able to to connect uh sandra and david
2: and if by some beautiful chance they ever got to hear this we hope that you're both
1: doing well and that you were able to be together Thanks for listening to our episode on Vampyra. Unfortunately, as we mentioned, it's difficult to see a lot of her work because the KABC broadcast of The Vampyra Show was live and never properly archived. However, we do have a list of links and recommendations in our show notes for anyone who would like to know more. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, please let us know. It took a shit ton of time to research, record, and edit this episode— So it is so helpful and motivating for us to hear that it's actually worthwhile. You can rate the podcast, leave a review, or send us an email at sup at womaninrevolt.com. We'll catch you back here in two weeks for a discussion on Cheryl Dunier's 1996 film Watermelon Woman. If you want to watch it ahead of time, it's available on Showtime. You can always sign up for a free trial and then cancel that shit immediately, which is what I recommend.
0: You know, I've often been asked why I don't like my attic with electricity. Isn't that ridiculous? Everybody knows electricity is for chairs. Our little fairy tale tonight called The Thirteenth Guest. The Thirteen makes it timely, topical, and terrifying. It's about a humorous fellow who dies telling a joke. Something of a deadpan comedian. Here. Let me darken the room and we shall commence.